They're along with what they signed. If the contract says that the broker reserves the right to offset any freight charges due for claims, even though it's a prospective claim, right. that she can do it. Beware what you sign on our operators when getting set up with that broker. So notes transportation attorney Hank Seaton, who you heard up top in a brief conversation we had at the National Association of Small Trucking Companies annual meeting here in Nashville last month. I'm Todd Dills, this is Overdrive Radio, and Seaton and I were talking specifically about the case of a Florida-based three-truck fleet run by Marta Vitoretta who reached out to me about what she saw as the curious treatment of two loads her company hauled earlier this year for Bennett International Group. Vitoretta's cargo insurance company got a claim on the first flatbed load that she and her driver ultimately disputed. The photographic evidence they believe shows the damage couldn't have happened while in transit. To this point, that claim remains tied up in the insurance process and meanwhile, both that and another load hauled by Vitoretta's fleet for the same broker have not been paid she says. Vitoretta's attempts to collect were all rebuffed, including by the surety bond provider for the broker, she says, with whom she ultimately filed. When we talked, she didn't have ready access to the contract she signed during setup with Bennett 10 years ago, but as Seton noted, it likely holds the keys to explaining why the broker hasn't paid the small fleet owner for the first and second loads. In Seton's Rules of the Road book about contract law and other legal matters for small trucking companies, he outlines the quote-unquote right to set off or offset freight claims with future loads that some brokers seek to include in their contracts with carriers. Essentially, as he explains in the book, and here I'll read it a little directly from it, increasingly, customer-drafted contracts expressly allow the shipper or broker to withhold freight charges, a practice known as set off, against cargo claims it believes to be valid. Seton's book bolds and underlines the following sentence, offering a warning to carriers about such language. This practice is intolerable, and you cannot afford to accept it. How's it work in the real world? Here's Seton explaining to me the practices of some of the more unscrupulous in the brokerage space, who in the event of a, even a whiff of a car valid cargo claim then work to build up more business with the carrier with the expectation of never having to pay for it inciting a set-off or offset. If they think you got a claim, they give you five more loads. Okay? So they can build up the receivables because they have the right of offset. So they do it all the time, and it's a sucker's game. So it, it's what you sign. The way to combat this with a broker is to not sign any contract that enables offsetting like this. Seton says carriers can insist on contract language specifying no offsetting of cargo claims, and with an added layer, as he put it, quote, if you do offset, you forfeit any right to the cargo claim. Tough stuff there, and Seton's seen a lot of it over recent years. In a presentation in a past series of online webinars conducted by Overdrive's sister, CCJ Fleet Publication, he named the practice of contract stipulated offsetting of claims one of the quote-unquote dirty baker's dozen of 13 unacceptable broker practices carriers should keep a lookout for. You can find more about these via his website, transportationlaw.net. For the remainder of the podcast, we'll listen in on Seton's presentation at the NASTIC event last month. Always well worth sitting in on for any of you who are members and have the chance to attend, typically the first week of November in Nashville. I've reported on it in years past. 
Seton remains well attuned, of course, to what's happening out there in contract law and on the regulatory front. Many of you will recall his name from the early days of the CSA program. Seton and Nastic were among watchers, pointing out the inadequacies and adverse consequences of the program's safety measurement system scoring of small carriers from day one, and played a large part in what we, where we are with CSA today, as Congress forced the agency to pull back carrier scores from public view and undertake a revamp of its safety scoring efforts. Unfortunately, in his view, what the agency is doing today seems, des seems destined uh, to be equally problematic. Seton and others among a coalition they're calling Motor Carriers for Regulatory Reform advocate the FMCSA do what they believe they are required to do and actually give all carriers a safety rating. Rather than rely on data the coalition feels will never be available in adequate supply to accurately, fairly, and equ equitably score carriers. They propose basic desktop audits conducted off-site every two years for every carrier in the nation, based in some ways on what's in place today for new entrant carriers. If that were the case, Seton, Seton argues, all carriers would truly be on a level playing field, at least when it comes to assurances to the general public that a minimum level of safety has been met. That general public, of course, includes the freight partners tasked with choosing one carrier over another. He gets to that particular subject toward the end of the podcast, but leading up to it, here's Seton talking about the evolution of electronic logging devices and how the federal government's thinking about them has evolved through the decades. Who was here in the last century when we had the, the first introduction to the tactical? Would you believe that in uh, 1976, I went with the number of motor carriers to the then ICC and said, why don't you let us use the tachograph in lieu of a paper log? We got drivers who got big motor skills and they can't get the blocks right. Let us use the tachograph. And what was a last century kind of computer system? They said, no, no, we'll never do away with the, with the paper log. So now, what are we, close to 40 years later, what's the tachograph, what's the ELD measure? Engine performance. Is it measuring fatigue? No. Is fatigue and engine performance equal? No. Is it fatigue that causes accidents? Yes. We have uh, uh, made uh, several filings with the uh, FMCSA about this. The most recent one was in their uh, request for comments about going back and making some tweaks on uh, uh, sleeper birth. Uh, and I think we all agree that it's not the ELD that's the problem, it's the strict informants coupled with some industry issues like JIT demands, you'll deliver at 6 a.m. or you bought the load. We've seen that. Uh, no detention. Uh, you showed up late, go over there, log off, uh, and we'll knock on the window and interrupt your 10 hour break. Productivity loss for some truckload carriers, strict enforcement. They say it's 20, 25%. So there's a lot of angst in the industry, and the, the way they tried to address it was. You know, if you're hauling hogs, you go to the agency and say, I need an exception. If you're hauling explosives, you say, I need an exception. Well, you know, if you just say everybody should get an exception, that's kind of crazy. 
Because, you know, I can justify one for my auto hauler clients. I can justify one certainly for my expediters, my furniture people, whoever, whatever niche you're in, you've got some economic reason to consider relaxing these uh, hours of service. Uh, what this comes down to is the value of a nap. The very people who came up with these crazy rules we've got back in 2003 were told by Nastic and others, your science is wrong. Your science that says that you need 10 consecutive hours off for your fatigue or that you shouldn't drive at night because of circadian rhythms doesn't look at the value of a nap. Well, we've been vindicated in what we told them uh, because since then, the very scientists who helped them design what we're stuck with did exhaustive reports for the FAA, and he said, there's a value in a nap. I was wrong about the circadian rhythms. The air traffic controller should be able to log off. People should be able to uh, have a value of a nap. Now, the value of a nap is the same thing as, as sleeper birth with some productivity. So we said you really should look again at your sleep science agency, get in the 21st century. Moreover, we said, look, you know, an updated tachograph may not be the issue. There are all kinds of people working on fatigue detection. Tachographs, Apple is there measuring biorhythms. It's a wristwatch. Onboard technology, major uh, OEMs are looking at ways with high rims and all kinds of other things to focus in on what is a fatigue driver. So we've suggested to them, rather than just doggedly stay in the same trail, why don't you do what the FAA has done and look at fatigue detection and see how to not make hours of service the enemy of productivity but to coordinate the two. And one of the things that's driving this is the Tracy Morgan case. I think most of us know about that. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think Walmart did anything wrong. The guy wasn't on the clock. And, you know, if you start tracking the number of fatalities that occur on Monday morning when the, uh, the, the, the truck driver's fatigued because he partied all weekend long, uh, that, the carrier picks that up. Uh, he's still liable, the driver's still fatigued, and the hours of service didn't do a damn thing to measure. So what we're suggesting is that you should look at this. And this is an area in which some of the big boys are going to help us because the Walmarts and the Hunts and those folks are funding the studies to see how you come up with a fatigue management system that gets away from the straight jacket. Seaton here turns to the underlying issues within the CSA safety measurement system, the data itself, arguing ultimately that any scoring system really the agency might come up with is going to be problematic for small carriers, about which there's just not ever going to be the kind of data well that could be necessarily, uh, that would be necessary to accurately assess safety numerically. Roadside inspection data is misleading. It's seized on by plaintiffs to, in the up supply chain situation. And the crash data based on reportable access is particularly misleading for small carriers. This is an interesting little chart. Uh, 
we're taking the total number of accidents that are reported a year, and maybe 300,000, I don't know, whatever it is. But everybody says that 70% or so of those accidents involving commercial motor vehicles are actually caused by the autos. Okay? So that leaves 30% that are caused, in some sense, by the driver or the company. Now, when you look at what is responsible for that 30%, based upon the best studies we can get, most of it is just very simple driver negligence. Not because management required him to do anything, you know, just inattentiveness, whatever. Not something that would allow you to conclude that the carrier had violated the rules of safety. You know, no equipment violation or anything. So when you get that down, here's the terms for fatigue, which you're talking about with ELD. Of all of the accidents that were reported, all 300,000, uh, 158 of them are uh, less than 4%, should really be used to determine whether or not the carrier violated some safety and what we're, what we're doing this for is to show that given this range of error, the idea of publishing anything about crash is entirely misleading. Now let's assume that you got less than 10 trucks and you have one accident. Well, if you can't prove that that was preventable, that accident puts you already over the national average. So for a small guy in particular, publishing crash data is uh, like this is it, it's kind of like it's kind of like going and playing the roulette wheel and spinning it once. Chances are, you know, 25 out of 26 times or whatever it is, you're going to crap out. Now, a large carrier can absorb that in, in some sense and avoid it, but it makes a small carrier look like steam, especially when you've got this kind of, of error going. And what we tried to do is suggest to the agency that the light scrubbing they want to do to get to preventability doesn't make a difference. Under the agency's definition of preventability, uh, only one out of every 10 fatalities could be removed under data queue, but there's no consideration for simply removing driver error. Carriers would be charged with, listen at this, conclusively proving that the accident was not preventable before it be removed. So that means every time you get an accident, the burden's on you to go back to the arresting officer or the officer who came in later and say, look, you should take that off because it was preventable. You got no appeal, you got no independent judge, uh, and you've got the burden of proof. That's a violation of what we call due process, which is the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty, kind of the Kavanaugh effect maybe. Uh, also, it violates the hearsay rule of Congress, which said that when it comes to the reporting of an accident by a policeman that's showing up at the scene and taking the hearsay from the, the various parties, it shouldn't be used in court. So if it shouldn't be used in court to prove that you caused the accident, it shouldn't be used in court to prove that you caused some other accident that makes you a bad actor that gooses up uh, your liability in the current litigation. So the very fact that they're considering republishing this 
uh, provides plaintiff's bar with, a, with another sword. Now, if anybody wants to see it, on behalf of Nastic and 10 other people, we filed comments in opposition to this uh, with a couple of catch affidavits telling them not only no, but hell no, and I hope they listen to us because it really is something that we see is an unfair disadvantage to small carriers. Uh, I had a guy, this is, uh, I'll digress. I had a, uh, a guy I had dinner with, he's an auto hauler. He used to own his own company. He's uh, probably in his mid-50s. He decided that he would just uh, take his one truck and sign on with the big company. He was coming through Indiana, which is a probable cause state. He got a speeding ticket and he was fired. And now his record's hoard up. He's got a few more years to work. He's got no recourse for being fired. He had no way to appeal uh, speed warning in Indiana and probably had to have a very hard time uh, doing what he loves to do, which is drive a truck. Now, that's kind of a, a, a typical scenario when you're drilling down to the individual owner-operator type guy. I can't tell him that the trucking company has to keep him employed. Obviously, they terminate him because they're scared to death that uh, that uh, you know that speeding kick will come back to haunt them. Uh, I can't tell him that he's going to get anywhere on a day with you. He didn't have his day in court because it was a speed warning. So his career is it, it, jammed, all because of, of this kind of, of foolishness. I think we all know that the, the agency since 2008 has been developing SMS, and we all know what the basics were, and the scoring mechanisms, and, uh, all of the fight that uh, we fought for 10 years. Our premise is, and still is, that the agency is required to provide an accurate safety rating for 525,000 carriers. That's all of them. How many in this room actually have a safety rating? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, got assumed by that that the rest of you uh, are continue to operate. Okay. Well, what has happened is, although the government told the agency 10 years ago to devise a way to give everybody a safety rating, they give you all the new carrier audit, and you pass it, they don't give you a set. They leave you with continue to operate. That becomes a contaminating source in a lawsuit. Because plaintiff's bar says, well, gee, you're a small carrier. The agency didn't give you a set. If the broker used you, the broker must have been negligent. The broker should not have used anybody who didn't have a satisfactory record. The broker should not use anybody who'd only been in business for a year. There's actually a suit going on right now in which plaintiff's bar is saying that the broker should have liability because the guy was a new carrier. Now, you've been through the new carrier audit, but you didn't have a satisfactory safety So you can see how the agency not doing its job and leaving so many people without a safety rating makes it more difficult for you to get right. I'm going to show you in a minute how the agency, how many safety ratings the agency gets. But let's look quickly at the data flaws that we pointed out to them that they haven't addressed. They don't have sufficient data to measure most of the little guys. You know, uh, uh, GAO agreed with us, you've got to have 20 data points, have enough data so you can even get a trend line. And 
A lot of you guys probably haven't been inspected two or three times last year. May have been inspected more than that because they didn't enroll the good ones. So I'm just saying that uh, by and large, the vast majority of the NASTIC members don't have enough data to even be measured with statistical accuracy if the data are accurate. Uh, that's part of what we call the law of small numbers. Uh, the use of average crash rates, we've talked about the misuse of crash data, state enforcement anomalies, uh, Indiana writes eight or nine times more speed warnings and tickets in most of the other states, but there's no way to normalize this, so poor, poor folks who operate in Indiana have got problems. Uh, peer group creep, profiling, enforcement bias, all of these things we demonstrated to the agency and they have just ignored. What they couldn't ignore was Congress told them to take down the scores that were so bad and they haven't justified them. Although the agency logs in 7 million violations annually, it had no inspections for 40% of the active carriers. That means that 40% of that 525,000 carriers they couldn't find in a year to even inspect once. Okay. So there certainly aren't enough roadside inspections. And guess what? Every year the number of roadside inspections goes down. And now that form and matter is gone, it's going to go down another 15%. So the idea of a small guy getting enough inspections to be measured, much less to be measured accurately, is just a mathematical impossibility. One of the real problems is the agency uses a regression of averages using unsurvable crashes to produce inaccurate results. I may have shown you this. Uh, in previous years, but it's still accurate because they're working on 2015 data. This is what they say proves fatigue driving. They were only able to uh, uh, measure 42,000 to 35,000 in here. They said this was a trend line uh, based upon uh, uh, fatigue driving uh, percentiles. As the percentiles went up, the number of crashes. So the, the argument was, hey, we can use that percentile right, ranking to say that Hank is a bad actor because he's got a score of 70 and he's two-thirds of the way up. But that's saying that everybody works on an average. This is when we actually spread it among the carriers that were involved, and you don't see this nice little trim line. There are people up here, down here along the bottom line, that uh, scored 100 fatigue, and they never had a crash. Yet the way the agency was assembling and fooling it, it was guilt by association. You were put in a group that may have no reflection of your operation, and it was counted against you. And this, plus uh, the next slide, which is unsafe driving, were the two basics that they were going to use to say, you're out of business. Seton here is referring to the proposal to tie safety rating to the CSA Safety Measurement System, or SMS, in which failure of unsafe driving and hours of service compliance categories were proposed to result in a not fit determination. That proposal, however, was formally withdrawn by the Trump DOT in early 2017. You know, I'm saying that's unfair. Uh, this is the number of inspections uh, over the roadside, uh, and you see it says the number of roadside inspections is decreasing, 
no, no good inspections are not altering reported. You can see that uh, there is a pretty steep decline in the actual number of data that they're using to, to feed the system over time. Now, I think the results is that we can show that, we've been working on it now for 10 years, I think we can show that the proof is that it's not in the eating. What we've now got is when they came up with a rule they said this is the culmination, here's how we're going to use it. They could only identify 262 carriers as unfit for use based on the data alone. 262 out of 525,000. The thing was, when we got the numbers and turned that, half of those 262 that they would have put out on data alone didn't have any crashes during their own study. So they had a 50% error factor and much less than 1% of the carriers would be measured by the data. So what we've been telling the agency is you need to go back and find a better way to do your job. You've assumed that you've got to get data to get crunch to somehow extrapolate over to prove that the carrier is not fit to use. We got a better idea. This is their uh, a safety rating chart. Look at this. This is the number of safety ratings that they have issued uh, since 2014. You see that good, bad, or indifferent, they're issuing consistently somewhere between five and 6,000 safety ratings a year. For all the expense and collection, the agency could only issue safety ratings to 1.2% a year. That's the reason when all these hands went up, I knew a large number you've been around for a long time. But you guys have got safety ratings at eight or nine years old, and they say, oh, well, those are not valid. That's a snapshot in time that's nine years old, so they would discount that. But of all of the 65,000 new entrants at audits they're doing a year that don't count as safety audits, that's what they get, less than 5,000. Now, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. This is the result of them using the safety of culture and SMS for the past few years. This is the large truck uh, and, and bus fatality scores. Look at this. Prior to SMS uh, coming online, we had a fairly steep decline in the number of fatalities. Since it's come online, it's crept up. Now, I'm not going to say there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. I'm just saying that they certainly can't say that the culture of safety and use of SMS has reduced highway fatalities. So, you know, with this kind of track record, you can't say that you got a foundation for continuing to use big data. Okay, uh, who's heard of the IRT? One guy heard it. Another, another, we got another one in the back. The IRT, I think, stands for the Item Response Theory. And it is a notion that only an academic could love. It's basically based on the notion that if we get enough data and we crunch it, and we look at the results, and we don't like it, so we crunch the data a different way, and we keep crunching the data, sooner or later we're going to be able to connect the dots. And they say this IRT model has been proven in developing the SAT or the ACT. You remember those things in college tests? Well, 
you know, they're a little bit different from a safety rating in that everybody takes the same test and they're right or wrong answers. So you don't really have a data quality issue, nor do you have a, a, a variance. You don't have to peer group small guys against big guys, private school people against public school people in order to do an SAT. But let's say somehow there's a correlation here, so we're going to come out with this new IRT model, and they said this is going to solve all of our problems going forward. So they got a test study out to try to develop the IRT model. Let's look at that. Although SMS can't get the job done, the National Academy proposes the IRT, and they say that they need to go out and get new or different basics to resuscitate SMS. So now we've already looked at all of the highway infractions and inspections and we accumulated all that data and that's not sufficient so they want to get something else. Anybody have an idea in this room what they want to get next? What else, what other data they could get to put into this machine that would come out saying that you were going to be crash prone? The missing, uh, missing is any plan for data accuracy or normalization of due process. And small carriers with little data would probably never be treated uh, uh, fairly. In comments we filed uh, last week, we said that the IRT option did not address data accuracy. Uh, in, in fact, their own people said that it didn't. But here's, here's what they want to look at. Amount of pay for the driver. Method of pay for the driver, driver turnover, and possibly time of day or weather conditions. So, as best we understand it, I'm going to ask you who you thought came up with this idea in a minute. Uh, they would say that if you were paying some driver to be productive, either by paying him by the mile or by the job, you were encouraging him to speed, and hence you should be graded down. They would also say that amount of pay, that if a driver is paid more, like Jamie Hunt, and you pay him, then they get promos and you get discounted. Okay? Or they would say, with respect to driver turnover, and this is one that we would actually win if we weren't peer grouped among ourselves, because a small carriers do a better job of holding on to drivers than the big guys. But they would say that they would look at driver turnover regardless of cost. So if I'm seating in Sun Trucking and seating retires and it's just left Sun, I've got a 50% turnover rate. Unless they normalize while the guy quit. <laughs> okay? Or if somebody comes walking in my terminal and says, here's a $10,000 sign-on to go down the road and work for Schneider, then all of a sudden I've become a bad carrier. I think you can very quickly see that all of these kinds of things uh, seem more related to labor issues, don't they, than safety issues? Yeah. But this is the kind of stuff that they are submitting as a way to resuscitate SMS. And, you know, we think that is absolutely crazy. If we're going to do what we said we were going to do and give everybody a chance, it has to be a level playing field, and we've got to get plaintiffs far out of, uh, out of there. 
out of the thing. And we certainly can't give them fodder for that. So this is the cost-benefit analysis. And uh, one of the things, uh, I don't want to bore you too much with what's legally involved, but ultimately before a rule gets in place, it has to go through what's called the Administrative uh, Procedure Act. And at that point, the agency has to say, this works and there's nothing around that's better. Okay? And that's what's called a cost-benefit analysis. And what we've said is, look, before you start us on another eight-year development of the IRP, maybe now, in terms of regulatory reform, is a chance to look and see, is there some easier way to do your job? Now, we have told them that there is an easier way to do their job, and the way to do their job is to take this new carrier audit that they say works fine, and is given to 65,000 carriers a year, and say, we will do a new carrier audit, it's a desktop audit, call you up on the phone and say, you got three drivers, I want to see this and that, you send it to them, and they look at compliance, and they give it. A new carrier audit would become a basis for giving you a satisfactory safety rating. If you pass it, you get a set. If they, if you got a problem, it's not you get an unset, you get what they call progressive intervention. But in that way, you have set up a methodology so that everybody in this room would get a safety rating every two years. Some of you probably haven't had it in eight or nine. But then you would end up being able to tell Chuck, and I hate to pick him, the guy just got a good brokerage, be able to say, look, I, I'm on equal playing field because the agency has examined me and certified me as safe to operate. And this goes back to something we've been preaching for eight years, that safe to operate is safe to use. It's the government's job. If they let you run by the scale, then they have certified to the shipping public as well as the traveling public that you're okay. So that takes a second guessing out of it. So this biannual uh, uh, desktop audit is something that we have uh, we have proposed to the agency, to the DOT, to NICSAP, and so far, so far the agency has kind of got on blinders about staying data. Okay, the virtues of what we're proposing is it's already been adopted and found to be efficient. Number two, it's cost to quantify. We don't know, we're not waiting on trying to find something new to measure. It's about $350 per audit, which compared to the data collection is small. Uh, if it judges all carriers large and small on safety fitness standards without a systemic accuracy problem uh, uh, or the problems have been encountered with SMS, ultimately uh, the IRT program will require rulemaking in compliance with the APA. The very cost-benefit analysis, the evaluation of cost-effective alternatives are all just going to be kicked another eight years down the road with no tone results. And there is these two executive orders. These executive orders are something the Trump administration put in as soon as they came in. And they said they wanted every agency to examine all the regulations that they had on books and remove two needless regulations for every new one. And they instructed every agency and department to look at regulatory reforms. We're probably not going to give up on this. Uh, well, I know we're not going to give up on it. How it turns out will remain to be seen. This is the cost-benefit analysis. The IRT model, 
cost unknown. Biannual audit, $400 per audit. Uh, our key model, uh, based on uh, uh, current data, we don't know what it is. Ours would measure compliance, not mean average. You know, that graph I showed you where they said, well, everybody in the 90 percentile must be unfit. Ours would be based directly upon how you comply. You know, whether or not you have driver qualification files, whether you've drug tested people, whether you've got your maintenance records, the very things that otherwise would be subject to knowledge. Uh, they would rely on data alone. We would rely upon an agency audit. Uh, their error rate is uh, it would be 50%. Uh, we could implement ours now. Their methodology is unproven and required. So that's uh, now time to tell you what we think about this IRP. Not much, as it were. Time will tell ultimately where it goes. Until next time, read more about the IRT model at overdriveonline.com by searching item response theory. And stay safe out there.